This is Rise and Grind, and I'm Damon John. And I turned $40 into the multi-billion dollar brand, FUBU. I'm also a shark on ABC's Shark Tank and a consultant to brands, businesses, entrepreneurs, executives, and celebrities all over the world. For my new book, Rise and Grind, I sat down with some of my highly successful peers from all different industries to see how they conquered their goals. I'm going to take you inside the daily habits and routines of each of my guests to find out how they make the most of their 24 hours. Rise and Grind is brought to you by ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. ZipRecruiter has helped businesses of all sizes find great people. And right now, listeners to my podcast can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash rise. A little later, it's grow time with ZipRecruiter CEO and co-founder Ian Siegel. Ian will share some insight on pivotal moments that help businesses and their leaders grow. Today, he'll tell us about some of the hardest parts of starting his company. Stick around. My guest today is Nelly Galan. I call her the tropical tycoon. Born in Cuba and raised in New Jersey, she is a self-made media mogul. She was the first Latina president of entertainment at Telemundo and has produced over 700 episodes of TV. Now, there aren't a ton of female business personalities out there, let alone Hispanic ones. In my line of work, I meet a lot of people, and when I met Nelly, I was immediately impressed. And since we've gotten to know each other over the years, I've only learned more and more from her. Lessons that I had to share with you. We sat down together at our house in Venice Beach, California. So today I'm here with my buddy Nelly Galan. Um, for those who don't know who she is, I mean, I can summarize it by being uh, the female Tyler Perry, right? That's right. Um, you were a celebrity apprentice. You ran Telemundo yes. and produced 700 shows. That's right. right? So uh, I think that's pretty much a, a good way to sum up who you are. But more importantly, and probably even more difficult than all that, you're a mom. I'm a mom. Right. Um, I'm a so, Latina and a mom. And a Latina and a Very mom. Important. And but you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna I just wanna put that out there for those who didn't know. And and you created also the Swan, which the Swan, yeah. Which uh, a lot of people And I just wrote this book, Self Made. Self Made, New York Times New bestseller. New York Times bestseller about and a hell of a motivational speaker. Oh, thank you. Right. And just like my book, uh The Power Broke, oh, we didn't yeah. know each other at the time. We didn't. And your book your concept is think like an immigrant. Think like an immigrant. Same exact thing. So thank you for being oh, here with me, and uh, of course, uh, my rise and grind concept is we're just gonna shoot the crap, and I want to try to discover and learn just like everybody else. Uh, mm -hmm. What makes you tick? How did you get there? Um, and all those other things in between. So, where were you? Where were you uh, initially born? Where are you from? I was born in Cuba. In very Cuba. timely right now. Uh -huh. Very timely. Uh, very timely. Cuba's in the news all, every day, and yeah, I was born there. And, and when I was five years old, my mm -hmm. parents who were at the time, living in Cuba, everybody at the time was very pro Fidel Castro. Uh -huh. uh, and then Fidel Castro became communist. I think Americans don't realize that that's what happened. Right. And there was no freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, uh, everything was confiscated from a lot of people, their homes, their, their properties, everything. And my parents chose to leave. And it's fascinating, Damien, because at that time, the United States had that whole kind of communist Russian Cold War yeah, thing going Cold on. Issue, yeah. And unlike today, where immigrants have such, you know, are so, um, you know, talked negatively about back then, 
different churches in America were taking Cubans on uh -huh. and sponsoring them to come to the United States. Right. So we came to the United States, we went to Southern New Jersey, and for one year we lived in this lady, Phyllis Krebs house, who was the most American, like, leave it to Beaver, Beaver woman, uh -huh. whose son had died in Vietnam, and her other son had died in a pool accident, and her minister said, I think you need to do service to feel better. Uh -huh. And let's help a Cuban family. So imagine these Cubans uh -huh. uh, put in southern New Jersey, living in an American family's house, and my dad went and painted cars on the Ford Motor Line, and my mom went to work in a factory, and like so many immigrant kids, I became the translator, the therapist, the shrink, <laughs> the everything, and that's how I grew up in America, like so many kids of immigrants. Yeah, and that's an amazing story, actually, for, for a couple of aspects, you know. Um, the fact that, you know, you guys had to leave and, and had nothing. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that a family that, you know, a lot of people don't think about that stuff. Like, I, mm -hmm. I always say that it takes all colors to help, you Absolutely. know, and, and we, don't, we don't see that beautiful part. We see all only the, the negative side a lot of people talk about. Well, you know, you it's know? interesting. When I first came to America and, and I was in, you know, first grade and second grade, kids would call me names. Mm -hmm. Sure. And they would say, you're a spick, and you're, I didn't even know what that meant, right? right? right and I right. come home and I tell my mom, mom, these kids are saying things about me and this and that. And she goes, you know, you come from this incredible island. Mm -hmm. You come from like an African background with mm -hmm. a Spanish background. You speak multiple languages. How could anyone think more is less? Right. They're ignorant. Yeah. So whenever those kids say that, you just remember that two languages, three cultures, yeah. two countries is more. You know, it happened to my daughters as well, and it, you know, uh, my ex-wife is Dominican, and you know, when they went to schools that were predominantly white, and you know, kids would call them names, and when they would draw pictures of all the kids, my daughters were yellow, you know, in the pictures, you know. <laughs> but, they don't know uh, what to make of it. And, and no, and they were they were pretty much a, they were pretty much ashamed that they could speak Spanish for quite some time until they realized that it was a gift to be bilingual, yeah. and um, and they started to grow that confidence. So now you're, you're in America, your dad is a hardworking man. Mm -hmm. What is your mom doing? My mom was working at factories and then she came home and started taking care of kids and making wedding dresses. So, so all right, obviously you're working and you're understanding the discipline of work. Yeah. So now take me to your teen years. Where, well, what I think happening? before we get to our teen years, I think in seventh grade my life changed because in seventh grade my parents were going through a hard time financially. You uh -huh. know, like, like so sure. many immigrants, it's up and down. And they sent me to all-girl Catholic school because they were trying to send me, they thought our daughter's smart, we wanted uh -huh. to go to a good school. And I would overhear them at night and my mother would say, ¿Qué vamos a hacer? ¿Cómo vamos a pagar? How are we going to pay for school? Uh -huh. And my father would say, don't worry, Jesus will help us. Mm -hmm. And I thought, hell to the no, then I'm gonna go <laughs> into the nun's office and get kicked out of the school. Uh -huh. So this older Jewish lady, I lived in Teaneck, New Jersey, uh -huh. which at the time was Jewish and black. Right. And so here I was, two big influences in my life, right? Sure. And this old Jewish lady down the block said to me, honey, why don't you sell some Avon and I'll give you some free lipstick. And I thought, I better go cut a deal with this lady. Uh -huh. So this is why I love your story, because it's so relatable, yeah. you know, that we had to just hustle, right? And you started selling Avon? So I, I went up to her and I said, let's go sell Avon, but 50-50, forget the free lipstick. Uh -huh. And in the first week I sold Avon, I made 200 bucks. Uh -huh. And in the fourth week, I had 800 bucks and I was paying down my tuition. But then I was worried about my dad because my dad is like a macho Latino. Like, right, right, he would right. never let his daughter right. do that. Sure. So I said to the nuns, send me a letter home. Say I got a scholarship or something. I bring the letter home and I bring it to my mom and she goes, ¿Qué dice la carta? What does it say? 
And my father goes, oh my God, your daughter is a genius and Jesus helped us after all. And I always say that that That's was great. the first moment of entrepreneurship. Well, you, well, first of all, realizing that you can actually negotiate a deal That's instead right. of getting free lipstick, right? Free I saw it on TV, Damon. I saw somebody say 50-50 on TV, <laughs> and I copied them, which I think is very useful sometimes. People think that they have to know everything or invent yeah. everything. I find that acting is a beautiful skill in life. Yeah. Sometimes you have to pretend you're somebody else that's more empowered than you and act as if. That is true. That is true. I think I had another bad thing happen at this all-girl Catholic school that changed my life. What happened? In my sophomore year in high school, I mm. wrote a story for school that took place in Cuba. And the nun calls me into class and she says, I think you plagiarized this. I think this is an Ernest Hemingway story. And we're suspending you for three days. And I went back home and I told my parents and my mother said, you go ask for forgiveness of the nun because immigrants <laughs> are afraid. Yeah. You know, Latinos, so talk. many uh -huh. of my friends that are African-American, they say, how come Latinos, when people talk about them, don't speak up? It's because we're immigrants. There's somehow there's a trauma, like we're going to get kicked out. Right. And so your mother always takes the side of authority, even if authority's wrong. Kind of and brother. so my mother said, go apologize to the nuns, you know, and I go, but I didn't do anything wrong. So I was home for three days. I wrote an article to Seventeen Magazine, which as a teenager mm -hmm. was the magazine I read. And it was called, Why You Should Never Send Your Daughter to All-Girl Catholic School. And I sent it in. And I went back to school after three days. The nun apologized. She goes, I'm so sorry. This was actually very well written. It was actually a compliment. She went, she went and looked she went around. She went and looked around. Find it, right? okay. And she said, it's, I thought it was... She did know, compare she thought, you to Ernest she, Hemingway. She was comparing me to Old Man in the Sea. I think it was... A, <laughs> And I got an A and everything boiled over, boiled over. Three months later, I get a $100 check in the mail from Seventeen. And they said, we're publishing your article. And I go, no! <laughs> and I'm like, how do I buy every magazine off the shelf? Like, <laughs> and the day that I went to school, the day the magazine came out, I walk into school and all the girls are, are talking about me. Oh, she's in trouble. I get called to the principal's office. You know, that was like my fear yeah. that I'd get kicked out of the school for uh -huh. one reason. Well, I walk into the nun's office and she says, we don't like your kind in the school. Really? And I start bawling. I run out and I go home and I tell my parents, I just got expelled from the school. My mother, ay, por favor, why did you do this? Go back! That's on your hands and knees! But instead... I want to be your mother. My, my, mother my mother and father are very funny. And I, I got mad. I, I sat by myself and I go, wait a minute, this is an injustice. Yeah. Didn't my parents bring me here for freedom of speech? Mm -hmm. And I call the Board of Ed of the state of New Jersey. And again, I don't, you know, so I think some, somewhere in me there is a fire because I don't You're take it. You're a feisty little thing. I'm a feisty little thing. <laughs> and I call the Board of Ed and an African-American man answers, bless him, because if a Latino had answered, they probably would have said, you know, so but he was more empowered. Say, what, 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 what did your mother say? Will you go back? Go back and put on your hands and knees. Por favor. <laughs> so I, I, call, I say to this guy, listen, are they, these nuns allowed to expel me for writing a story? And he goes, Technically, yes, because it's a private school. He said, but why don't I set you up with a reporter in your local newspaper? Because you know what? You came here for freedom of speech, the First Amendment. You can make a case out of this. Right. Uh -huh. So I'm impulsive. And he You'll, set you up with a reporter? He set me up with a reporter. I went and talked to the reporter, and the next day it comes out in the Bogota newspaper, Cuban girl gets expelled for a First Amendment issue. And my mother, no! Ah! <laughs> why couldn't you be quiet? <laughs> She was freaking out. My father's like, we are putting us in a bad situation. See, for, for the people out there, you don't realize when your parents don't speak English, and now they get called to the nun, oh, the, the nun immediately called, come and see us right away. Uh. 
Can you imagine, put yourself in the body of people that don't speak a language and have to go speak, yeah, and they're yeah. super intelligent in Spanish, yeah, yeah. and they get translated incorrectly sure, in sure, English. Sure, 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 yeah. So that car ride was not pleasant, but here's what happened. I go in. But your parents went with you this they time. They went with me. Yeah, they had to. Uh -huh. And they were getting ready to get on their knees. <laughs> and I walk in, and the nun is like super nice. Uh -huh. And she's like, oh, I never said I was expelling you. Uh -huh. You're a great student. I was just telling you that we didn't like what you did. Uh -huh. And so she takes it up, and then she goes, in fact, you're such a good student. I was. I was like an AP student. She goes, we're going to graduate you a year and a half early. We wanted to get you the hell out of here. <laughs> so... What happened then, the next thing that happened is I get home and I had a call from Seventeen Magazine. And they said, we're so proud of you that you stood up for your rights, mm -hmm. that we're giving you the youngest guest editorship in the history of Seventeen. So I went to work at Seventeen Magazine at 15 years of age. Wow. Now that internship paid nothing. So I would take the bus from Teaneck to New York. Mm -hmm. It was costing me money to go. Sure. It gave me like a small stipend for transportation. Uh -huh. I'd come home, I got myself a job at The Limited, mm -hmm. selling at night. I got another job babysitting, so I had three jobs plus the internship so that my parents would feel like it was okay for me to do this. Tell me, how, how did your day look? I'd have to get up How your rise and grind was, all right? Yeah, and, and by the way, I think all these things have led me to have incredible sure. discipline. Uh -huh. I'd wake up at five, and you know, in New Jersey, you, you have to go walk to the bus, mm -hmm. and then you'd get the bus into the city, which would take an hour, and I would ask people on the bus, how do I go? And then you get to the city, and you have to learn the train system. Mm -hmm. And that's another 45 minutes on the train and switching trains twice. And then from the train, you walk up to this, on Third Avenue, Condé Nast, mm -hmm. and all these big buildings yeah. building with these magazine editors, and you got there, and the first thing that happened to me is I get in there, and I realize that I'm dressed wrong that I look New Jersey, mm -hmm. that I, you know, I was a little, as I say in Spanish, cuchifrito, I looked a little cuchifrito. <laughs> and I walk in and I go, oh, these girls are all dressed in black and they have like minimal yeah, makeup yeah. and I'm looking a little like, you know, the Jersey Shore. Mm -hmm. And so I start <laughs> noticing that I have to start tweaking, right? Uh -huh. The second day I'm there, this, I mean, everybody at the time at Seventeen Magazine was like blonde, blue-eyed from Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And my boss says to me, I need you to book a shoot book five models and this and that. And I said to her, well, how do I do that? And she said, if I have to ask you, I'll fire you. Mm -hmm. Open the drawer and figure it out. Get it done. Uh -huh. And so I went back into the room and I always say, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. I, I, I said, I have to make this work. And I did. I opened the drawers and I saw, and I just called things that were already in the drawers, mm -hmm. people, and I made it work. You set up a shoot. I did that. Then I started Barnard Early Admissions. Mm -hmm. And I was blessed because... I, you know, everybody donated money to me and I started going to school. But then another magical thing happened. This one Latina woman in Texas who was a producer. There were no Latinos in television at that uh -huh. time. She was producing the teenage version of 60 Minutes for PBS. So one day this lady calls me. I'm 17 years old. She didn't really know how old I was. She assumed I was older because mm. I was at 17. Mm -hmm. And she's like, listen, I'm coming to New York. I want to interview you. Um, we're looking for young reporters that are in their 20s but look like teenagers for the teenage version of 60 Minutes. And she came and met me and she, I mean, if she had known I was 17, she would have never offered me the job. Right. And she offered me the job to make no money, it was like, I mean, literally no money, um, to go, but to move to Austin, Texas. And I went to see my mother and I said, Mom, I just got offered a job on TV. Mm -hmm. And she's like, you are 17 years old, you're not going anywhere. Right. I go, Mom, if you don't let me go, 
I'm going to escape. And I say this, this is an important story because when I go around the country and talk to women of color, they all tell me we don't leave home because of our family. We don't leave home because, you know, especially Latinas and, mm -hmm. and like women from Asia and women from India, it's just culturally not cool to leave home. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I said to my mother, I'm going to escape if you don't let me go. And three weeks later, I had a little Chevy Chevette that I had bought, an orange Chevy Chevette. I get in my Chevy Chevette and I drove myself across the country. Austin, by yourself? By myself. My mother, I left my mother crying. And my mother is, I will never forgive you till the day you die for leaving me. <laughs> and you know, I wrote this story in my book because my mother read the book and she cried so much when she read the book because she said, where would we have been if you had not left that day? Okay, we're gonna take a quick break because right now it's grow time with Ian Siegel. CEO of ZipRecruiter. What's up, Ian? Hey, Damon. Tell me what it was like when you started ZipRecruiter. I'm going to be honest. It was really hard in the beginning. I left a job that was paying more than $300,000 a year, and I was immediately earning $0 per year. Wow. And we were burning through our savings at this point. And everyone, from family members to friends, were asking me questions like, how long are you going to try this before you go back and get a job? What makes you think this is going to work? Are you sure this is a good idea? And I've likened becoming an entrepreneur, it's a little bit like telling people that you plan to be an artist. Until you start earning money, everyone presumes you're gonna fail. So my advice to you at the beginning is if this is the path you're going to choose, stay strong because nobody's gonna believe in you. Focus. Focus. Man, that knowledge I'm gonna use for myself. Thank you for being here. Thanks for the compliment, it's great to be here. 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. So try it for free today at ZipRecruiter.com slash rise. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash rise. I knew Gloria and Emilio Stefan mm -hmm. when, when I was... 17. And how do you know them? That's just, I, I, you don't casually just say no, that at 17. I went to, they were quinceanera band. Okay. And I'd go to quinceaneras in Miami to my relatives. Okay. And I thought, these people are going to be big. I think, <laughs> right. you know, I, I related to your story so much because you, yeah. some of us, you have to have a nose yeah. for who's going to be big. Uh-huh. That's a gut feeling. Right? So I had a gut that these people were going to be big. And I kept telling... But people don't realize that, that Gloria Stefan was a quinceanera band. Like, she was a quinceanera band. And for people who don't realize what a quinceanera band, it was like it's Sweet 16. Sweet 16 band. Band. And I, I've always liked you because I, I love that about your story. I would see Latinos and I go, these people are going to be huge. That's it. Uh -huh. Like I knew J Lo when she was. You can't even. I can't even tell you what she used to do. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I would have a vibe, and then my job, I would say to the, the these producers, I go, I have some stories because it was like white people doing stories about Latino and African Americans. They were trying to make a very multi-ethnic, you know, mm -hmm. 60 minutes for teens, and I'd say. Well, there's these people in Miami, and they're going to be—they're about to be huge. We should follow their story. And they go, "Who are they?" And uh -huh. so I felt like if I really could write—remember, my strength was writing. Yes. If I could write a case for stories, I would get to be a producer, and mm -hmm. I did. So, what time did you get home each day? I'm just curious. well, back then, I mean, it's very—it's very recent that I actually get to go home at a decent time. I mean, I would stay there till eight or nine o'clock. Now, part of it is I had no life. Right. I had no personal life. Mm -hmm. I was this young kid living in Austin. I didn't know anybody. Mm -hmm. So my whole thing was to succeed in that job. That's why when young people say to me, 
oh my God, I'm, I'm dying, I do three jobs. I go, I don't feel sorry for you. Right. When you're young, there is no balance and there shouldn't be balance. Okay. There's plenty of time later in life for balance. There's no balance when you're young. What stage is you're no longer young? First of all, I want to say that I, I refer to myself as a turtle. Even though it seems like I've done so much, mm -hmm. the truth is I am, I'm more about completion mm -hmm. than fast. So that my work stands for itself. You know, I've never really got had to worry about getting the next job because my work speaks for itself. I almost have an abundance of offers. Do you think it was your work or do you think it was you? Well, it's my work and it's my positivity. It's yeah. my energy. Because, you know, in our discussion right now, a lot of people were attracted to you for whatever reason it was. Mm -hmm. And then you're talking about people who are Kinsey bands who you would say, that's going to be the next star. That's going to be the next thing. How important do you think, besides the discipline of the things we do, how important do you think it's the person that people invest in? I think it's important. I mean, the person is everything. And, and it's also, you're going to hear in my story, that I've also invested in going to work for people because mm -hmm. I also thought whether I liked them or not, sometimes I didn't like them. But I knew that they had something to teach me. And yeah. that's another eye you have to have. Yeah. Um, but I also think this stuff can be cultivated. I do. Uh -huh. I think that, you know, if you put a lot of negative stuff into you, and if, you know, like if I had grown up, I grew up with a lot of Latinos that are very melodramatic. Like, ay Dios mío, the world's coming to an end. Mm -hmm. We don't trust anybody. Uh -huh. if, and if I allowed that to simmer inside of me, mm -hmm. instead I just, I really kept the, the positive things that I heard. Like, you can do anything. Mm -hmm. We didn't come all this way for you to do nothing, yeah. you know? And for me, I guess I always had this feeling of mission and money. A lot of kids in America, we get told, follow your bliss and the money will come. I think that's a BS, mm -hmm. first world entitled way of thinking. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you live in Afghanistan and you want to be a singer, uh, but your mom's starving, are you going to go be a singer? Maybe not. Right. Maybe you've got to go work in a factory, right? Mm -hmm. So to me, it's about mission and money. You, you have to always cultivate what you love, but at, on a parallel track, you have to make money at what you're good at. You have to keep the lights on. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Always. Yeah, and, and, and always take care of your family and always take care of business. Because if not, what you're doing is a little, it's like a little grandiose and BS. So okay. I, I bring myself down to groundedness all the time. So you always had this grounded base no matter what. And anything else that came out of that is great. But you knew what your path and what you had to do. So now we've established already, obviously, you know, the work ethic and, and all the things that have happened to you and the opportunities you took and the opportunities you you know, uh, the things you fought against. So now all of a sudden, you're at this point where you are a big executive. You're over at Telemundo. How did that happen? Well, that, that is the best story of my life because, so that, that job early on got me into to Boston to mm -hmm. be in the correspondent producer training program at CBS News. Mm -hmm. I was living in Boston and I was a stringer, which for people that don't know, you go around the country interviewing people that get, these stories get dropped in the, the, the news. Yeah, sure. And one of those people that I interviewed was Norman Lear. Mm -hmm. And Norman Lear, you know, was this very big producer in the 80s, very, very big. And he was a nice guy, you know. And he says, what are you? Are you Jewish? What are you? Because I have this <laughs> New York accent, right? Uh -huh. I go, no, I'm Cuban. And he goes, my partner and I just bought uh, the license to a Spanish TV station in New York. And, you know, he should meet you. You're very feisty. I think he would really like you. And I go and I meet this guy and he's like, I bought, in, I bought this TV station and he goes, you want to come and work for me? It's going to be, I'm just warning you, it's a rinky-dinky little station in Newark. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I go, no, I really don't want to come and work for you because I'm at CBS. Why? I don't want to do anything Spanish. Uh-huh. That's like tacky to me. That's like what I want to <laughs> run away from. And he goes, young lady, you know, I think you're wrong. He's like, do you know how big the Latino market is going to be? He's like, what? you don't want to be the number one employee of a business that's going to go through the roof when you speak Spanish and you're Latina? He says, are you rich? I don't think so. Well, I'm rich. And I think the best decision I made in my life was quit CBS in Boston. Maybe that's where my immigrant rooted, grounded, I went, wait a minute, this guy doesn't sound like my bosses at CBS. They seem like they're running around like chickens without heads on too. Mm -hmm. And I made the decision to go work for this guy. And I ran Channel 47 in New York. Mm -hmm. Before there was Spanish TV, there was Channel 47. Uh And it was an independent station. And this is where I really, you're gonna love this because this is so you. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I, you know, I show up there, there's four engineers, union engineers and me. Mm-hmm. It was in Newark. We, I needed a bodyguard to get in and out. This was before Newark, Newark was gentrified. It was pretty tough then. And I, I didn't know what the hell to do. And I get a call from Edie's Chacon. Do you remember Edie's Chacon, the dancer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was like J-Lo, yeah, but like, yeah, yeah, Frito J-Lo? Of course, of course. Okay, from Puerto Rico, she calls me up and she goes, <laughs> I got an offer to sing at radio, to dance and sing at Radio City. She had a, she had a show in Puerto Rican TV that I had put on Channel 47, uh-huh. and she was hot in New York. She had a big butt. That was her famous I, thing. How do you think I remember? Of course I remember. I remember. <laughs> and she's like, Nelly, you gotta help me. I got Radio City, I can't, I need to make it. She goes, you have airtime. I go, Edis, I'll make you a deal. I'll put you on 24 hours a day. We're gonna do little segments. We're gonna do a commercial. But ha- I need half the box office. That was my Avon thing. 50 At Radio 50. City? Yes. And so we put her in. She sold out. And they said, we want three nights. And so I went, okay, more Edie's check on. Uh-huh. And, I, and I was like, I made so much money uh-huh. that every artist, that's why I know Mark Anthony since he's a kid. Because yeah. all these artists would come to me and they'd go, okay, let's do the deal. Because it was better to have... 50% of the box office and know that you're going to sell out seven nights. Sure, sure, sure. So I sold out all these artists in Radio City, giving them my airtime. That's amazing. So three years into this incredible story, uh, my boss's uh, lawyer walk in, and I, the guy comes in and he goes, we just sold the station to an insurance company, to Saul Steinberg in New York. And I said, how could you do this to me? And I call them both up and I go, how could you? This is my baby. You didn't even tell me this was him. And they said, young lady, those are our chips. You want to play? Go get your own chips. And I thought, I was so mad. Mm-hmm. But they, they gave me $300,000 over the sale. They sold the station for $75 million. I didn't quite get the math until now, until right. a few years ago. But in order for them to sell it at $75 million, I had to make $7,500,000 a year. Every single year. So that they could sell it at a, at a uh, multiple ten, of 10. 10 times multiple, yeah. Right? They gave me $300,000 in a Mercedes Benz. I cashed the Mercedes-Benz, I moved to the East Village to a fourth floor walk-up in the East Village, and I said to myself, I am never working for anyone again. Now, how old are you at this time? At this point, I'm 25 years old. For four years, I did not make a penny. Can you imagine the Latino parents? Por favor, find a husband, your looks are going to go, please. You're living in the East Village, this is a horrible place. Por favor. Get a job. My friends, my, you, know, you, know, no, it, you know, it wasn't so cool to be an entrepreneur when I was 25. Yeah. People were like, are you losing it? Get a yeah. job. Yeah. So, but I had incredible faith. Why? Because my boss had said to me on the plane in passing one day, 
When I was your age, I started a business. For 10 years, I didn't make money. And on the 10th year, I became a millionaire. And I thought, well, I'm only on year four. Right, all right. Right? But here's what happened, and here's what I was doing wrong. I was bootstrapping this thing, and I had not joined the Chamber of Commerce. I hadn't joined YP, you know, like YEO, Young mm, Entrepreneur. No, 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 no. I had nobody else to talk you to. You had no support system. I was alone, and I was doing everything wrong. So finally, I start going to these mixers, and this and that and the other. And out of nowhere, I get a call from Michael Fuchs at HBO. So remember that, that Russell Simmons at the time was doing all those comedy specials mm -hmm. and all that. He calls me up and he goes, listen, I know you want to do programming. I've got a, a, a deal for you. I'll let you do some comedy specials on HBO. I didn't know anything about comedians, I didn't know, hence why I ended up with who I ended up with because I started in the comedy world. But you have to do something for us. We want to launch HBO in Latin America. We've sent three MBAs down there for a year and they can't figure it out. I go, well, do they speak Spanish? Right. And they go, no. He goes, Okay, well, and that's, I thought, that's not problem number one. So I thought to myself, oh my God, this is it. I got this in the bag because I knew all the families in Latin America. And he goes, but you got to do that for us first and then you'll get the three, the three specials. I go to Latin America and well, all I had to do was find a partner that had a cable company. And what I did is basically they said, look, I said, what did you guys get at the height of HBO per subscriber? $100 a subscriber back then. Now it's like pennies, right? So I, I went to, the, I said, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, let me start at Venezuela. And I said, do you guys want to do this? HBO is the biggest thing, blah, blah, blah. And I cut the deal. Mm -hmm. And then I got the call that changed my life, which is I got a call from someone. And he said, I work for a man named Rupert Murdoch. I didn't know who the hell Rupert Murdoch mm -hmm. was. And he said, I want you to launch six TV channels for me in Latin America and later on in Asia and abroad. And I said, I don't want to do that. I want to make shows. I'll make the shows for you. Mm -hmm. And he's like, no. He's like, you're, he goes, is that what you want to do? He goes, your business model is wrong. And this is the guy, he said, the reason the African-American market hasn't really worked content-wise, now remember, this is 93, is because it has no distribution past the United States. Mm -hmm. And the way that we make money in the TV business is you break even in the United States and then you profit around the world. And he says, and for the Latino market, there isn't even a market in the U.S. fully because it wasn't at that right. moment. And he's like, if you want to be the queen of programming, you need to go be the queen of distribution first. And when he said that to me, once again, I had another one of those aha moments where I go, he's smarter than I am. Yeah. So I'm going to follow the lead. I moved to Los Angeles. Uh, Rupert Murdoch gave me a bungalow on the Fox lot and then charged me $50,000 a month for it. And I said, hell to the no. I'm going to move to whatever the worst area of LA is, which was Venice. Mm -hmm. I bought a building before I ever bought a house on Abikini, which is now the hottest street in, in, in America, for no money. My staff, for, multicultural staff, were like, we were on the Fox lot. I go, that's Rupert Murdoch's brand. That's not my brand. We moved here. I moved my butt to Latin America because I had to now, it was a job to go to launch six channels and make sure they were all working in all these countries. And I moved a year to Mexico City. I lived in Chile. I lived in Argentina. I lived in Brazil. My staff was here, um, and that was the beginning of my first business. Let's just fast forward up to when you are just running Telemundo. Telemundo. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it changed the way of programming. It 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 brought to America the reality that Latinas and Latinos are very powerful. They have a voice. It's it's one of those moments where you get a lot of press because you're the first woman and first Latina president of a network. 
people thought, well, where'd she come from? She's an overnight success. And they don't realize that you've schlepped all over Latin America. You've put up with so much crap. Mm -hmm. You have, you know, really done a lot to get there. Your parents don't think you're successful because you don't have a kid yet. <laughs> you've, you've not really found the right guy because mm -hmm. you only hang out with celebrities and people that are not right for Some you. Some people shower, yeah. Um, and so you get there, and it was, and it, it's a very mixed thing that happens to you because mm. I'm the token Latina. I was here on top, and then there was no other Latinos, and then I had to start bringing in Latinos. Mm -hmm. And that you can never be the token in a company. I had also gone back to corporate America after being an entrepreneur now for X amount of years, and, and that was rough. How was it? Because I want to know, how did your day, how was your day then? Because, you know, you went through this point where you were starting to cut deals, you know, for everybody, outsource it to me. You were your own boss. Now you have to work in a massive structure. Massive. But how, how was your day at that point? You know, because, you know, oh. how much of your day was spent, and I asked everybody this, on offense, and then how much was spent on defense? Oh, that's a great so question. So you'd, you'd wake up early in the morning now. Same thing. All right, same thing. You're waking up 5 o'clock in the morning now, right? Now you're going I was probably into, exercising more in those days, because if not, I wouldn't have made it. Because that's what I'm saying. You should have burned down. Now, you've been doing this yeah. now from 15 years yeah. old up to, yeah. at this point, at this I don't point, know where at you're at. At this point, I was 35. You're 35, all right, yeah. so now you put in 20 years of no social life. 34, actually. All right, yeah. so so now you're starting to date a little bit, you're hopefully starting to exercise. How did your day start to change? Because you should have been burned out by then. My day, well, here's Tell, the difference. Run, run me through the day. My the day first would still minutes. wake up at five in the morning, mm -hmm. uh, but, at, but at five in the morning, I would have like a box of things to read before I got to work. Okay, so you're gonna, so, are you reading those things to research or are you reading them for? Because I have to deal with, because I have, in, in corporate America, you have meetings 10 hours a day. Okay. So I needed to know that I was meeting with you. Right. What is it that you wanted me to read? What show do you want me to do? What mm -hmm. did you, so I had to read a lot. So I read it a lot at night before I went to bed, but I'm more of a morning person. So in the morning time you're reading. What time was your day ending? Because you still now had to sleep for eight hours. I still have to sleep right? for so eight you, hours. So you still got to go to bed at 10, yeah, right? Yeah, I do. I do have to go at to bed 10 at 10. At 10 or 9, yeah, one of them, right? Some, yeah, 9. Nine or ten. So what, how did you fit um, it all in? Well, I just, I just did. I think, I think I'm a really great time manager. Did you schedule it? I think I scheduled things, and also I knew how much of my time to spend on what. It's kind of like, first of all, I, I, my whole theory on time management, I come up at the beginning of every year with three things that I have to do in one year. Mm -hmm. Not 20 things, not 100 things. Three. So you three said big goals. things. Three big things. I break that down every Sunday to what are the three things I have to accomplish this week to get to my three things at the end of the year. If you tell yourself, I'm gonna go work out two hours a day and I'm gonna, you're not gonna make it, you're gonna give up. So what you do is you say, I'm gonna lose 30 pounds in a year, not mm -hmm. in a month, not in a week, in a year. Mm -hmm. And then you break it down to the week, right? Like I'm gonna lose a quarter of a pound this week. So you make them such small goals that you feel good because you feel successful because you completed. Well, thank you. That thank is amazing. You. I've already learned now how to, I already do goal setting, but I like those three uh, annual goals and how to reset them on Sunday just for a small progression. Um, Look, all of it, what people don't realize, and this is what I, what I got out of your story, which was wonderful, is first of all, we're both self-made people. And I mean that in, in the broadest sense. Like, it's almost like I don't want people to think it's just entrepreneurship. It's DIYing yourself. Oh, yeah. It's sure. constantly rebooting yourself Absolutely. and growing. And it's also taking responsibility for your life. That someone else, you know, I say in my book, and I think it's the most powerful thing in my book, is there is no Prince Charming. And I mean it for men and for women. Like, no boss, no corporation, no president, mm -hmm. no mate is going to save you. Mm -hmm. And when you fully understand that, you realize you can save yourself over and over and over again.
Well, thank you. It's an honor. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for being an inspiration. All right. It's grow time again, and we're back with Ian Siegel, CEO of ZipRecruiter. Ian, welcome. Let's do this. Hiring is so important. How do you hire the right people? One of the things most businesses miss when they write a job description is they forget that they're not just listing requirements, but what they're actually trying to do is entice candidates to want to work for them. So I, I have one simple piece of advice for all the employers who use ZipRecruiter, which is start the job description by telling the candidates why they would want to work with you. It sounds so obvious, and yet 99% of the job descriptions we see skip this step. So if you're a tight-knit group that likes to go to lunch together and have happy hours on Friday, tell them. Are you a pet-friendly office? That's awesome. Tell them. They need to be able to imagine themselves working with you, not just doing the job. I think we all forget that uh, the candidates aren't just applying to us. We are also, in effect, being interviewed by the candidate. I'm writing that one down, too. Thanks for the compliment. It's great to be here. If you're a growing business, ZipRecruiter can help you hire the right people. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash rise. Once again, try ZipRecruiter for free today at ZipRecruiter.com slash rise. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. If you enjoyed listening to this interview, there is a whole lot more where that came from. I break things down even further in my new book and audiobook, Rise and Grind. I also share how I've incorporated some of these principles into my own life and use them to stay motivated and focused. Check out Rise and Grind wherever books and audiobooks are sold. And if you want more info on what I'm up to, check out DamonJohn.com and follow me on social media at TheSharkDamon.